IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm T.J. O'Hara, the Principal Political Analyst for IBN, the Independent Voter News. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guest today is Scott Graytech, Director of Advocacy for Transparency International U.S. Mr. Graytech is an attorney who has helped lead legislative, legal, and ballot measure initiatives on campaign finance, voting, foreign influence, ethics, and fair representation. He comes to Transparency International from the United States domestic anti-corruption community, where he helped pass over 20 state and local anti-corruption reforms as senior counsel for Represent Us. Mr. Graytech also designed legal challenges to cases such as Citizens United versus the FEC as counsel for a boutique litigation firm. And he authored the leading report on judicial corruption in the United States as senior policy counsel for justice at stake. He currently manages the legislative agenda for Transparency International U.S. and oversees its anti-corruption legislation lab. Welcome to Deconstructed, Scott. Great to be here with you. Scott, what is Transparency International U.S.? Transparency International U.S. is the U.S. presence of the larger global organization, Transparency International. Transparency International, or TI, has been around for almost 30 years. We are the oldest and the largest organization that works on corruption in the world. We're in about 120 countries across the globe. And our mission is pretty simple. It is to end corruption as it operates both within the countries that our chapters and our members work in and to end the practice of transnational corruption, which enables corruption across national boundaries and really around the world involving so many different financial centers, political systems, including the United States. The way that we define corruption is the abuse of public power for private gain. And happy to go into some examples of how we see that problem iterating today and throughout our 30-year history. Please do. Sure. So one of the most important and certainly attention-grabbing examples right now is the backstory for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, Russia is one of the most important examples of how a corrupt regime or what we refer to as a kleptocracy, which means rule by thieves, what can happen to that type of government regime when corruption is allowed to fester for decades? You know, Russia basically has one of the most unfortunate histories of corruption in modern history, because after the Soviet Union fell apart in the late 80s and early 90s, the Russian government privatized so many public industries and public assets that created this oligarch billionaire class of high-powered, politically connected officials who basically got their money by pilfering from the Russian state. And this system of government, though it's gone through a few, you know, different leaders leading up to the now two decade plus rule of Vladimir Putin, has basically allowed a few people at the top of the government to build resources on behalf of its larger population. And then now through that corrupt patronage network to use that accumulated power in the form we're seeing now of military aggression, of violence, of human rights abuses in the deadly invasion of Ukraine. And so this is really exhibit A 
for worst case scenario, for what happens when the Western powers, democracy writ large, folks who are committed to good government and the rule of law allow and in some ways are complicit in corrupt systems, we're seeing the atrocious outcomes of a full-fledged kleptocracy in our nightly news for the past couple of months. That's a great example. What does Transparency International U.S. do with regard to a situation like that? So one angle of the story of Russia's invasion in Ukraine that we're really pleased to see elevated and amplified to a much bigger audience than we think ever before has been how the West and the United States has been complicit in allowing Russian wealth to be taken from that country and moved into safer, more stable economies, either Western Europe or even here in the United States. And so what our office tries to do is not only call attention to how the loopholes in say our financial system or our political system is allowing that wealth to be moved out of Russia and into the United States, you know, and how we need to close those loopholes, expose that dirty stolen money, but then, you know, bigger picture, preventatively, proactively, how the United States can start working better with our allies in order to make sure that we are in lockstep so that dirty money can no longer make its way to any you know, lowest common denominator race to the bottom jurisdiction and that we create essentially a global no-fly zone for corrupt money. It is only possible for corrupt officials like in Putin's regime to get away with their crimes if they have these getaway vehicles, if they have these jurisdictions that they can dump their ill-gotten gains to. And if you lock out the opportunity for these folks to drain that wealth, then they have to keep that money inside their country. And then that increases the opportunity when the people who are being stolen from to be made aware of the fact that they are being robbed of this amount of money. My organization has estimated that the Russian people lose $300 billion a year to corruption. It allows them a greater opportunity to find that money, to reclaim that money, to hold their leaders accountable, and to make sure that that money is ultimately repatriated and given back to them. So we are trying to both close the loopholes that allow that money to make its way into the United States and to encourage the U.S. government to be a strong force for good in providing a more universal, multilateral response to transnational corruption, including what the Kremlin is to perpetuate. Now, Scott, earlier you had mentioned strengthening political integrity. What are you doing on the domestic front when it comes to elections? So Transparency International around the world, there's a lot of diversity in what our chapters tackle. Some, just due to what their local domestic circumstances are, are committed overwhelmingly, very heavily to political integrity reforms, like the effective money in politics or lobbying and ethics, you know, more the election law work here in the United States, because we see such an opportunity to have an impact on the financial transparency, tracking and responding to dirty money front. That's where the majority of our efforts go. But we also support a lot of the reform efforts that have taken place on what we call the U.S. domestic anti-corruption front or the political integrity front. So we were very much in support of H.R. 1, the Freedom to Vote Act that was passed by the U.S. House and unfortunately was not able to make it through the U.S. Senate. We are in favor of accountability, conflict of interest measures, such as a new measure that is quickly gaining steam and bipartisan support 
to have greater transparency and conflict of interest rules around investments that are held by members of Congress and their immediate family members about stocks and investment assets that are held by those folks so that they don't have conflicts of interest when they're voting on issues that have consequences for those financial holdings. You know, we also participate with folks in the whistleblower community to make sure that there's both adequate resources to respond to folks who are calling out abuse of power in our own government, that those claims can be adjudicated and have open and fair hearings and opportunities for response. And we are working with a coalition of folks now on how to respond to what we see as a growing threat of malign foreign corruptive influence. And so these are you know, foreign corruptive powers, including Russia, including China, that are attempting to influence U.S. policy through things like donations to 501c3s, the nonprofits that are trying to exploit former senior level political advisors or employees of the federal government by you know, using the revolving door that exists in the United States between folks in high-level positions of power in the U.S. government and then going to work as lobbyists or agents for those foreign powers. And so these are just a few opportunities that we see, you know, a bipartisan path forward. And that's what we're most interested in, is being able to use this otherwise consensus that exists around corruption being such a significant problem, not only in instances of, you know, Russia and some of the consequences we've seen, but inside the United States, how it can unite Democrats and Republicans. And so that's where we primarily focus a lot of our effort is trying to bring strange bedfellows, if you will, behind opportunities like that to help initiate that get over the finish line. I'm one of those people that thinks words matter. And you made an interesting distinction. You use the word influence. And often the media uses the word interference when they talk about foreign interference in an election as opposed to influence. So I commend you on the fact that you referenced influence, which has been going on for decades. The, the issue is how do we contain that and how do we compare it to domestic influence where misrepresentations seem to be permitted? Scott, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about ongoing efforts of Transparency International U.S. when we come back. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back. My guest today is Scott Graytech, Director of Advocacy for Transparency International U.S., an anti-corruption organization. Scott, you mentioned kleptocracy. What does Transparency International U.S. do with regard to kleptocracy? How do you investigate it? How do you enforce against it? So one of the most important ways of addressing kleptocracy, first of all, is calling out how it works. In this regard, we are so indebted to partners and folks in the media who have helped elevate this problem. I think one really good example of how this has sort of pierced the public narrative over the last year has been the Pandora Papers. The Pandora Papers was an expose that came out last October. It was the largest investigative journalist project in history. These were hundreds of journalists from all around the world who basically looked at leaked financial data coming from different kinds of firms around the world. You know, the folks who help you form or incorporate or register a company in a country, lawyers and accountant services. And they looked through all of this data and they found that 
essentially the world's global elite, the wealthiest folks among us, political leaders in countries all across the world, were using these opaque vehicles to hide and move their money overseas, away from their home jurisdictions in order to invest and grow that money. And it showed that basically the rich operate very differently than average people. They take advantage of trusts and anonymous companies and investment vehicles and real estate and luxury goods in order to take you know, huge amounts of money, often that may have been corruptly obtained or came from very suspect sources, and they move it out of their country. You know, they move it into places like the British Virgin Islands and increasingly into the United States. And so what we work to do is to make sure that the loopholes that allowed those folks to move that money into the United States are closed. And one you know, big idea that the reform community has coalesced around recently is that we need to crack down on who we call the enablers of corruption or the gatekeepers to the United States. These are the folks who are, you know, the U.S. accountants who are helping these corrupt leaders manage and move their assets. These are the lawyers and corporate formation agents who are helping these folks set up shell companies in the United States, or they're setting up trusts that these folks can move their money in. And right now, those folks do not have to do the same kind of due diligence you know, who is your customer? Where is this money coming from? Anti-money laundering checks that say a bank has to do if somebody wants to open up a bank account. And so these corrupt officials, these kleptocrats, they have the best lawyers, the best lobbyists, the best accountants advising them. They know what the rules are. And as banks have adopted these strong anti-money laundering programs, it's these gatekeepers that remain the loopholes the way that this dirty money can flow into the United States. And so we have been working with a bipartisan group of members of Congress in order to put together a new bill that would essentially crack down on these gatekeepers that are allowing so much dirty money to flow into the United States. A couple quick examples of how this particularly ties to Russia. We know that two high-level Russian oligarchs, Roman Abramovich, for example, described as Putin's banker, invested, according to the New York Times, about $1.3 billion into funds managed by U.S. investment advisors and firms here in the United States, primarily through a New York State-based investment advising company. And another, you know, one of his closest allies, Oleg Deripaska, has multi-million dollar properties, real estate, in Washington, D.C. and in New York City. And the way that he was able to hold these properties was by going through a U.S. gatekeeper in Delaware who set up these companies through which Deripaska is able to hold these properties. So unless we go after these intermediaries, these folks who are making money by essentially turning a blind eye to who their customers are and allowing this dirty money to come to the United States, we won't be able to excise the United States from its role that it's currently playing to perpetuate corruption as it exists across the world. Scott, we hear a lot about government seizures, other countries doing it, our country doing it, and so forth with regard, and again, in particular, to the Russian oligarchs. Is there a concern about government seizures? Do you monitor the disposition of the assets to make sure that the seizure avoids corruption? Yeah, so the United States has two primary sanction mechanisms that we use against corrupt officials. A few years ago, you know, the United States 
created a sanctions regime called the Global Magnitsky Act. This was named after a Russian lawyer who exposed mass amounts, tens of millions of dollars in, in fraud in the Russian government and was subsequently tortured, jailed, and ultimately killed because of his acts as a whistleblower. And Global Magnitsky allows the U.S. government to ban foreign nationals and foreign entities, their companies. They can do two things. They can ban them from being able to enter the United States. That's called a visa ban. And they can essentially freeze their assets, making it so that they cannot transact with banks in the United States, that if they have assets that are in the United States, that they're not able to move them. And that regime has been effective at being able to deter behavior, to destabilize some of these larger kleptocratic networks. These folks obviously have influence you know, with folks like Vladimir Putin, and the Deripaskas and the Abramowitz. So if and when these folks are added to these sanctions lists, it can obviously have trickle-down impacts on the way that Putin conducts his foreign policy. But when you mention asset seizure, you know, in the United States, we have obviously very strong rule of law tradition, and we have a judicial process when it comes to taking property from folks, even those who are accused of crimes like corruption or human rights abuses. And I think we want to make sure that in the process of identifying and tracking down and freezing these assets that are linked to the Kremlin and to decades of Russian corruption, that we're not adopting the same kind of behaviors that Russian and other authoritarian governments have, where they will just take your property without any adjudicative proceeding, without any rule of law, opportunity for a hearing, et cetera. And so we certainly think that there should be, and the Biden administration has requested that there be changes to that process to expedite it, to make it so that if you find those assets, that they can be frozen and seized as quickly as possible. But we don't want to cross the line of offending constitutional rights and start going down that slippery slope that turns us more into the folks that we are ultimately trying to combat through those policies again. The reason I ask, Scott, is because I know we've had some problems in the United States at the state level with government seizures. And when you see some of these examples on television where it's a 185-foot yacht, one wonders where that went <laughs> and what's the disposition of it. And so it's good to hear that we've got an organization like yours that is monitoring this. We're going to take a quick break and talk more about the ongoing efforts of Transparency International U.S. when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IVN's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. My guest today is Scott Graytech. Director of Advocacy for Transparency International U.S., part of the world's largest coalition against corruption. Scott, there's a conference coming up in December, the 20th International Anti-Corruption Conference, and it's going to be in D.C. this year. What is it going to cover? How many people appear? And what's the focal point? Yeah, so it's really exciting. This December 6th through 10th here in Washington, D.C., will be, it's called the International Anti-Corruption Conference, or the IACC. It's hosted by the United States government. It's organized by the IACC Council and my organization, Transparency International. This conference typically brings together thousands of people. We can expect up to 10,000 people to attend either in person or online. 
It is the oldest, the first, and the largest anti-corruption gathering in the world for almost, I think, 40 years, has brought together the business community, activists, experts, journalists, international networks, government leaders to amplify, to dig in, and to try and find common ground and opportunities for reform around corruption. I think we're going to have a registration open this month, uh, so check our website, www.transparency.org, for more information. But a really exciting opportunity to take advantage of how much a priority fighting corruption around the world has been for the Biden administration. They released something called the U.S. Strategy for Countering Corruption last December. It's an almost 40-page document that walks through so many different areas of reform, from going after dirty money in the United States, to supporting journalists, whistleblowers, civil society around the world, to fighting foreign bribery, you name it. And I think it's created a huge opportunity for the anti-corruption network around the world to take advantage of and leverage that engagement from the administration in order to maximize this moment and to get the best bang for our buck, especially with so many of the current challenges that we're facing, including the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's a really exciting opportunity. And I'll also say it comes about a year after the U.S. Summit on Democracy, which was held in December. This is the first of its kind global summit that in part focused on the fight against corruption. That was one of the three pillars of the summit. And so it gives an opportunity for the anti-corruption community to sort of do a one year later check-in, you know, what has been achieved, you know, where are we on other goals and opportunities that we were looking for and really bring everybody together and rally to make sure that we um, are keeping the governments that made commitments at that summit, they're held to account and that they deliver on those promises. Scott, earlier you mentioned that Transparency International U.S. has interests in curbing narco-traffickers, arms deals, and so forth. There was recently a seizure of ammunition and so forth at our border. Does your organization have a position on the current administration's view of the Department of Homeland Security, particularly relative to border control? You know, the way that our organization looks at issues related to that is, is basically corruption in different parts of the world. You know, corruption is any time that a public official is abusing their power for private gain. And so, so often this is bribery. And it is, like you say, narco traffickers, human traffickers, human rights abusers, bribing government officials in order to turn a blind eye as they, you know, destroy the environment or pillage a country for its resources, whether that's oil and gold in Venezuela, you know, whether it is blood diamonds in the Democratic Republic of Congo, this is how corruption is perpetuated in different parts of the world. And so our organization makes sure and calls for greater transparency into the schemes that these folks use to carry out those crimes. So often they are only able to pay these bribes through the use of anonymous shell companies, through the use of opaque financial vehicles in order to get that bribe money to the official or to have that official hide that bribe money by moving it out of country, by investing it in a foreign asset, whether that's real estate or private equity. And so bringing transparency to those financial flows can give law enforcement, civil society, journalists, government regulators the information they need in order to be able to identify, you know, the actors involved to crack down on them, to work 
globally coordinating with different governments as needed to bring those kind of narco traffickers, human traffickers, et cetera, to justice. So the organization wouldn't have a position on the border issue, uh, for example, or even because information has value, the Disinformation Governance Board, I'm assuming your organization wouldn't have a position on that relative to political integrity. Uh, I'm not familiar with any border issue that we've engaged on to that respect now. Okay. What about some other examples? There was a sanction that was placed on 2017 on an individual by the Trump administration, and then they reversed that. And I believe the Biden administration has addressed it. But can you walk us through that type of issue? I believe the gentleman's name was Gertler. Yeah, so Dan Gertler uh, is an Israeli billionaire who had siphoned millions upon millions of dollars from the people of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Basically, was world-renowned, notorious, corrupt actor. And the Trump administration, in rolling out the inaugural Global Magnitsky Act sanctions, the first package of those sanctions, added Dan Gertler to this list, which obviously froze his assets, his ability to do uh, transactions in the United States with the U.S. financial system, essentially locked him out of the ability to use the United States and rely on those networks to perpetuate those crimes. And yeah, alarmingly, this was reversed in the final weeks of the Trump administration. And I think there's been a lot of conversation around whether that went through the typical process that such a reversal would entail. There's a lot of concern about the opacity of how that decision was made. And there's been a very strong call, including from my organization, to have a full investigation into why that reversal was made. It obviously provides a map for other corrupt business people and even corrupt leaders who are involved in those schemes to try and use lobbying influence, their armies of lawyers, etc., to change government policy. And importantly, if you reverse a sanction like that, even for a very short amount of time, the Biden administration, as you mentioned, has reimposed those sanctions. But in that amount of time where Gertler was not on the list, that allows him to move and hide these assets that have been accumulated through corruption and to make it all the harder, if not impossible, for governments, including the United States, to be able to identify, freeze, and ultimately repatriate those assets to the victims of that corruption. So we are still waiting for more information about how that decision was made, and it remains a top priority to ensure that the process involved in global Magnitsky sanctions can operate with integrity and transparency. I think one of the reasonable frustrations with independents such as myself and others that I associate with is how difficult it seems to be able to go back and get somebody to conduct an investigation, which would seem to be relatively straightforward, into a situation like that. Why was it reversed? Obviously, it had to be processed. It had to be reversed. How difficult is it to go back? And I think that's part of our frustration. So we appreciate what your organization is doing in that regard. Scott, in the limited amount of time we have left, where could our listeners go to learn more about you and the good works of Transparency International U.S.? I appreciate it, TJ, and thanks again for the opportunity to chat with you and to get our message out to your listeners. 
Our website is a great place to start. It's us.transparency.org. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at TransparencyUSA. We have the opportunity for folks to sign up for our newsletter on our website. You'll get all of our press releases, our statements, our fact sheets that we're putting out about various initiatives we're working on in Congress and with the administration. But thanks again for the opportunity to chat with you about all this today. Well, Scott Graytech, as Director of Advocacy for Transparency International U.S., you have a big job on your hands. I look forward to tracking the accomplishments of your organization, and I sincerely hope you make a huge dent in the political corruption in our country and abroad. So, Scott, again, thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. I appreciate it, TJ. I'm hoping that 2022 is a banner year in the fight against corruption. Thanks again. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.